It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny and this is my show. And today we continue our look at wrestling from Chicago uh, in a part two as we skip forward some 30 years to the much blind Super Clash 3, which was presented by the AWA and various other promoters, and which was kindly described as an unmitigated disaster from beginning to end. Um, there's a lot of explaining to do, basically. Um, but to join me, indeed, for this unmitigated disaster, is Mr. John Dinsdale. Uh, how are you, sir? I'm pretty good. It's a smart move to bring an unmitigated disaster on to talk about an unmitigated disaster. But yeah, <laughs> I'm ready for really my usual polite, charming, non-sweary co-host self. Indeed. Um, yes. Uh, we did look at Chicago last week, and it was kind of like, what do we look at this week? Because it's kind of the wrestling world's on hold. There was obviously a big show yesterday with AEW, and there was a big show with New Japan and Stardom today in their first crossover main event. Um, and it was like, but that's all happening today, so we wouldn't have time to watch it to review it. So we thought we'd go with something a bit different. And what we decided to go with was indeed Super Clash 3, because it's a fascinating professional wrestling tour, professional wrestling card from the UCI Pavilion in 19, December the 13th, 1988. So literally 20, 34 years ago. And the reason why it's so interesting is because of what was happening in the wrestling world at the time. Obviously, Vince McMahon was expanding with the WWF. We were in the era of WrestleMania and Hulkamania, if you will, uh, which AWA had plenty of Hulkamania going on. It's just that um, they didn't think that, well, the boss of the AWA, uh, Vern Gagne, who we saw last week in last week's show as a young upstart heavyweight contender um, and most popular star in Chicago at the time, uh, we kind of saw that he wasn't into the whole idea of Hulk Hogan being a big star of the AWA, believing he wasn't the style of star that would get over in the AWA, despite the fact he was selling out major houses all over the country. And, of course, he left and went to the WWF and became, you know, Hulk Hogan, which will show you some of the inherent issues the AWA had before we get started. But I would like to use the phrase, too many cooks spoil the broth at this particular point, because as John said, the show opens that with match show opens with Gary Michael Capetta stating this show involves is sanctioned by the AWA, World Class Wrestling Association, the powerful women of wrestling, the Championship Wrestling Association, and the Continental Wrestling Association. Which is a lot of promoters. And some of the biggest names and egos in the industry, namely Jerry Jarrett, Fritz von Erich, <laughs> Frank Dusick, <laughs> um, David Lane. And it goes on and on and on. So when you saw this opening segment and I said, hey, let's watch this, what are your thoughts, John? I was just kind of waiting for something to go wrong because when there's that many companies involved, and that many sort of big names, faces, and like cross promoting on the card. It's just like who's getting screwed over, who's going to be unhappy, and who's going to kick off. And 
I'd heard the rumours of this show and the reputation of this show, but I never actually sat down and watched it. So I was just like, is this going to be as bad as people make it out to be? And it's not... I, I'm still not sold on it being terrible, but it, no. it's an odd one. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I think the first thing they did, which kind of alleviates the issues they were going to have with the cross-promotional stuff is... Everyone from Texas wrestles everyone from Texas. Everyone from Tennessee wrestles everyone from Tennessee. The women, the AWA wrestlers wrestle the AWA wrestlers. The only cross-promotional match in the traditional sense is the semi-main event, believe it or not. Not even the main event, but Jerry Lawler versus Kerry Von Herrick for the undisputed heavyweight championship of the world, the World Class Wrestling Association heavyweight title against the AWA heavyweight championship. That's the only interpromotional match. And it's not like Jerry and Kerry had not wrestled each other before. They knew what they were doing. They were both the big stars of their respective promotions down south. I think there was a lot more kind of mutual respect between Kerry Von Erich and Jerry Lawler, and they kind of knew how to work around one another. So it wasn't really as much of an issue as it could have been. Um, but you're right. There is so many opportunities for things to go wrong. Like looking at a fire and saying, right, which direction is this going to spread in first? <laughs> but also, when you look at this card and who's on it, there's incredible names on it. And we'll we'll start with the first match: the Guerrero brothers, all of them: Chavo, Mando, Guerrero, and Hector Guerrero, um, except Eddie, who's the only one not on this card. Going against the Rock and Roll RPMs: Mike Davis and Tommy Lane and uh, Cactus Jack. Your Mick Foley in the opener. Um, the Rock and Roll RPMs are a classic tag team of the 80s, i.e. they completely ripped off the Rock and Roll Express wholesale. <laughs> but they were kind of an evil Rock and Roll RPM, Rock and Roll Express. They were always kind of like on the heel side of things. I love Mike Davis and I, just because of like his facial expressions. He was a, a brilliant junior heavyweight heel tag team wrestling heel and Tommy Lane's mullet is a, a, a astounding stature I mean just just gorgeous just on another level um feathered and lethal dyed blonde you just can't go wrong with Tommy Lane's mullet what's your thoughts on this one James I swear you'll forgive anyone if they've got a mullet but he he hates kittens, but look at that mullet. <laughs> it is a glorious mullet. Yes. You've got... it, it's a very uh, true Penny Shaw haircut. That is that is all I will say. It is. Um, did you notice who was the referee in this particular match? I didn't. I never got a good enough look at him. The referee is Mike Enos. Uh, former, well, soon to be not long after of the tag team that would become the Beverly Brothers, and oh. a new and a New Japan regular who would hold pinfall victories over the major theme of this year, Kiyoji Muto. <laughs> <laughs> uh, quite the draw in New Japan. It was a, it was kind of like a gauge in mid card. He did a G one and he beat Muto in the G one, or was it maybe in, uh, he definitely had a pin over Muto, 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 not Muto. Um, but yeah, what's your thoughts on the actual wrestling though? Because it's quite cool to see this kind of 
Lucha-inspired tag team going up against like the classic Southern Heels. Yeah, it's it's a bit of an odd one, but it's by no means bad. It's a nice sort of easy to watch, high energy opening match with Cactus Jack getting the hell beaten out of him, which I'm not. It, 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 it does remind me of his biography when he said, like, the cold, hard, concrete floor gimmick is mine, all mine. And he does take it outside at one point and gets backdropped on the cold, hard, concrete floor. And you do realise why he has so many medical issues now. Bless him. Because, you know, the human body's not made to do things like that. Um, this, this has to be pre-deathmatch Cactus Jack as well. Because it's uh, 1988. Yeah, this... He was he was known for taking big bumps at this particular point, and he was already kind of like he'd done a few death match. He'd done a few like like the, this would have been a Texas match because he would have been world class at, at that particular point, and he was known for being, you know, he'd done a scaffold match, um, and he'd done um, probably done some barbed wire matches by this point, but he wasn't known for the hardcore days by this point. Oh, so this would have been a night off for him then. <laughs> Relatively, yeah. His, his run in Texas was not a happy one. <laughs> it wasn't great. Um, All right, we got no wire, no scaffold tonight. It's just a couple of concrete bumps and some submission work. You can do that, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he. Um, Texas was um, an interesting place at the time, and it was being bought by Eric Embry and. Um, uh it was yeah <laughs> and he he didn't it was his first full-time gig actually as a touring wrestler because it's still the tail end of the territory days um well let's move on to the next we have an interview segment um uh, with nina of pow which we'll explain when we get to the lingerie battle street fight battle royal later on but nina would end up being ivory in the wwe in a three-time women's champion but back then she was uh, Nina, and she was a top baby face for Pow. I will explain all of Pow later, because I think it's worth explaining at the time, because there's a fair bit to go on with it. So we'll move on to the next match, which was indeed Eric Embry going up against Jeff Jarrett in a title match for the W for the um, huh, I think it was for the CWA, wasn't it? Hang on, which championship was it? World light heavyweight title match. The World Class Wrestling Association, that's out of Texas, light heavyweight championship match. Um, and this is Eric Embry and Jeff Jarrett. And yeah, that Jeff Jarrett, we wrestled on um, AEW Full Gear in this fight in the tag match <laughs> some 34 years after this. But you kind of get to see where Jeff Jarrett was going at this particular point in his career. And this wasn't that bad. It wasn't very long. It was four minutes and 13 seconds. And I am wondering if Jeff genuinely did like dislocate his shoulder because that's why it was so short. Um, well, this was kind of a scientific feud. Eric Embry was a heel, but he wasn't really that much of a heel. Though he was a brilliant heel when he wanted to be. Um, but, and he was a brilliant babyface when he wanted to be as well. Um, but what's your thoughts on this one, John? It was really quick, but it was pretty good for what it was. A lot of technical work, a lot of decent wrestling, and yeah, Jeff Jarrett being Jeff Jarrett, even when he was <laughs> really young. There's yeah. not the sort of country rock star Jeff Jarrett, but there's plenty of the wrestling Jeff Jarrett. 
yeah, he's got all the tools there. He's a junior heavyweight at the time, obviously, because this is a junior heavyweight title match. Um, and it's kind of a nice little scientific wrestling match, which kind of reminds you of the matches we saw on the cards last week from Chicago, if you see what I mean. It's nice that the threat a... Hmm, It's a very sort of traditional match with a lot of sort of just rapid technicality. It's like, I love the ref losing his mind. It's like, oh, Embry could have gone to the ropes to break that hammerlock, but instead he just kept going with it, and they go round and round and round for, like, a minute. <laughs> yeah, uh, commentary is performed by Lee Marshall and Vern Gagne, uh, swapping between Vern Gagne and Ray Stevens, two AWA veterans who kind of know what they're doing. <laughs> but yeah, it's all right. This match is pretty good. It's probably the best technical wrestling match on this show, I would think. Um, but there's not an awful lot else to say about it because there's not a lot of story there. It was kind of like Eric Embry was turning face slowly. It's a bit like this to Flair Steamboat story in in smaller form. Embry would be the babyface within a year and kind of leader of the locker room as top babyface. Because um, obviously, when you're the bookie, you're gonna put yourself as top. <laughs> it's the ideal thing to do. Also, Eric Embry noted for being an interest and um, walk around the dressing room naked whilst giving instructions to the wrestlers. Um, that was in the always program. Shall we move on? These dark times. I mean, this, this next match doesn't even seem worth talking about, really. It's kind of a classic. Jimmy Valiant match, really. It's Jimmy Valiant versus Wayne Bloom. There is a promo, but the person in the promo we want to talk about later, so we'll save that as a surprise. Um, it's Jimmy Valiant versus Wayne Bloom. What tag team would Wayne Bloom end up being in? Can't ask me wrestling trivia questions. I suck <laughs> I've already mentioned it this evening. Oh, the same one the ref was in, whose name I've already forgotten. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It was the Beverly Brothers. Oh, well, originally they were known as um, Wayne Bloom and Mike Enos, and then they became the Minnesota Wrecking Crew 2. That always, it's always good when you are the two of something. And brilliantly, they wore masks and were managed by Ollie Anderson. Um, because, you know, two guys from Minnesota couldn't possibly be the Minnesota Wrecking Crew unless they were related to the Andersons. <laughs> and then they became the Beverly Brothers and were managed by the genius and had one of the least exciting runs in WWE tag team history uh, but in this particular match Wayne Bloom is having his ass handed to him by Jimmy Valiant the boogie woogie man it lasts 24 seconds and ends with a elbow drop we'll tell you where we were in 1988 Yeah, there's, there's just nothing to say about this. It's a it's a very nothing match. It is. It's just it, it, it gets Jimmy Valiant on the card, and that's all you need. Don't need more than that. Sorry? Like, box ticked. We got the buggy wuggy man. But, like, after that, it's like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's an awful lot of WCW about this. Obviously, Gary Michael Capetta, he was obviously a former WWE, uh, sorry, WWF ring announcer at this particular point. He was the guy at the garden for a long while. Um, and then he went to the AWA when uh, the Fink kind of took over his role in WWF. Um, 
But this is a classic wrestling match from Texas. Brickhouse Brown versus Iceman King Parsons for the WCWA Texas Heavyweight Championship. Five minutes and 41 seconds of classic good guy versus bad guy wrestling. Really? Um, Iceman King Parsons, as we talked about on our Twitter chat last day, has three of the worst haircuts you've ever seen at the same time. Uh, it's it's unique, very unique. I always wondered if he was Jewish because he does have the star of David, David tattooed on his chest. Maybe, but yeah, it's a bit it's a bit strange. Bill Alfonso at ringside taking pictures can't really beat that. There's no, there's no there's no more eighties wrestling show than Bill Alfonso taking pictures. Uh, at ringside and this is just kind of your classic Texas wrestling match really nothing spectacular uh, championship match between two guys who don't like one another that's it there's nothing offensive here it's perfectly watchable it's just it kind of it's the it's one of the mid-card matches or the sort of moving into mid-card matches because there are so many matches on this card <laughs> holy but like yeah it's pretty good. What it is, and what it is, is not very long. No, five minutes and 41 seconds. Doesn't outstay its welcome. Does what it says on the tin. It's all right. It is nothing, it's not great. Uh, I think Ice Banking Passes is one of the best heels in Southern wrestling of this particular era and doesn't get any near the amount of credit that he should do for what he did. I think Brickhouse Brown was a really good wrestler who never really got anywhere because. He was a bit undersized for where he was. He was neither a junior heavyweight nor was he a heavyweight. He did bulk up in later years, but he wasn't like as crisp and as clean as some of the wrestlers around him. He was just a good journeyman wrestler who made a living. And you need those guys in that particular era. Shall we move on? Is this the first, is this the first of like five different dusty finishes? Yes. Iceman <laughs> had the nooks. Other wrestlers had nooks. Just, I mean, this is not the wrestling that you were kind of partaking of last week. This is a very Texas kind of southern wrestling kind of finish with um, Iceman King Parsons using a foreign object to, to beat um, uh, Brickhouse Brown. But it's very much Texas because it's like a couple of years later, I'd be watching world-class championship wrestling and USWA on Eurosport on uh, Sky Network at the time. And because they, they do they do like one era, this era of world-class on a Monday, and then it'd be that week's USWA on the Tuesday from the Saturday morning. And um, yeah, this I watched this kind of match over and over again, you know, it's like even like mid card matches would have would have like odd finishes. No one really got over. <laughs> no one went over easily, you know. Everyone's like cheated out of wins, but that's kind of what they did. That was the bread and butter of what they tried to do. You know, heels had to beg off. Heels had to be cowardly. There was kind of only one way of doing things, and that was kind of the Texas way, and that's how it worked. Um, but yeah, shall we move on? Yes, to one of the more clusterfuck matches. This takes some more organising, this does. So, 
Wendy Richter, the AWA Women's Champion, teaming up with Ricky Rice and Derek Duke's Top Guns, going up against Bad Company, Paul Lyman and Pat Tanaka, along with the challenger for the Women's Championship, Medusa Maselli, who will manage by the Diamond Dallas Page as part of the Diamond Exchange. This was a mixed tag for the AWA World's Women's and AWA Tag Team Championships, namely that whoever got pinned would take all the titles home according to this particular match stipulation. Now, here's the thing. I would watch Wendy Richter and Medusa Maselli wrestle for days on end because they're brilliant. They are not just two of the best women of their era, certainly the two best women in North America of their era. They were a massive draw. Wendy Richter was easily the biggest name in women's wrestling since the 60s. And Medusa Maselli was every much her equal as a professional wrestler. Bad Company, Paul Diamond and Pat Tanaka, one of the best tag teams of the 80s. Do you know where they ended up? Because they don't look very different. Sorry? Hmm? Do you know where they ended up in the end, where their, their last tag team one was? Probably New Japan. No, they were the Orient Express. Oh. Because oh. it was frigging Pat Tanaka. And he started with Sato. Then when Sato retired, Paul Diamond took over and put a mask on and became Kato. But originally, not know that. Yeah, originally they were bad company in uh, the AWA. Um, exceptionally good tag team. And so you have this green as grass tag team, Ricky Rice and Derek Dukes, tagging up with Wendy Richter. <laughs> going up against Bad Company, the AWA Tag Team Champions, and Medusa Maselli. And it's a mixed tag. So the men are only allowed to wrestle the men, and the women are only allowed to wrestle the women, which is fair enough, given the restrictions of the era. Um, Diamond Dallas Page kind of showing off his chops as a manager. It makes you realize why he was such a good talker as a wrestler and why he was such a vital kind of management force in WCW. Um, but yeah. It was it was good. It was it was potentially great. However, things not always go according to one's plans, do they, Joe? No, though. In in fairness to them, this match did not end the way I was predicting it to end. <laughs> because <laughs> no. they they'd gone to such great lengths to like explain. Oh men can only fight men and women can only fight women. I was expecting there to be some stupid DQ finish where, like, one of the heels gets Wendy Richter to slap them and it's like, oh, that's it, matches off, oh, heels win. Because, boo, rule-breaking. But no, it didn't actually happen that way. But it it was an absolute clusterfuck. Oh, it was a mess. Top to bottom. Utterly a mess. Um, yeah, just... The, the basic principles are there, but actually after that, it, it's like they would have done better to just let Medusa Maselli and Wendy Richter just have a match and the tag team just have brawl on the outside for five minutes. <laughs> they also reneged on the conditions. Oh, yeah. Because... <laughs> um, well, I mean, the, boy, the match ends up with um, Medusa Maselli um, holding Wendy Richter whilst Pat Nick is super kicks. Wendy Richter, but of course, Wendy Richter moves. She, he super kicks Medusa Maselli as she pins Medusa. So therefore, she wins, in inverted commas, 
She retains her title and wins the tag team titles for the Top Guns. Uh, but later on in commentary, we find out, oh, no, 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 the tag team titles are, could not change hands because they were not pinned. It was just a successful title defense for Wendy Richter, which is not what the announced championship was, which is a bit of a classic AWA kind of like double cross kind of thing. But it's like, well, that's not what they said. <laughs> because obviously, yes. I'm sure Ricky Rice and Derek Dukes turned out to be okay. But I won't want them as my tag team champions either. Yeah, they probably just thought, oh, this is going to be a nice idea. As long as they show their stuff in this match, we'll we'll go through it. And then it's just like, nope, 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 nope. You are not ready for our titles yet. Nope. (laughs) No, I mean, they're all right. They're all right, but they are both as, like, you know, exciting as tap water. Um, they had some good moves, though. Big back body drop that process in there. And it's, it, it's just nice. It's just, a, it's just like, it's kind of a sad tag team, standard tag team match, but worse because you've got too many moving parts. You know, um, and just kind of top it off is Medusa Maselli is trying valiantly not to expose herself in a top, which was an exercise in hope over function. Yeah. Yeah, um, but yeah, I, it's kind of like I can see where they're going from because they're trying to they're trying to make like the tag team division exciting and they've got these hot young teams and they're trying to do stuff, but it is just like this is not the days of the Road Warriors and the Freebirds, which was you know two years before, you know they like literally two years before they headlined Comiskey Park with the Road Warriors versus the Freebirds. And Vern had to be persuaded to do that. Because <laughs> like, Michael Hayes went to him, why don't you put us with the Road Warriors? We will burn houses down for you. And Vern went, but you're both heels. He went, it doesn't matter. We will make money because it's the Freebirds versus the Road Warriors. That's what people want to see. And he held it off. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. And then he decided to do it. And they filled Kamiski Park. By which time, Three birds had already signed their deal to go somewhere else. <laughs> and they were like, what do you mean you're leaving? Well, we've got a deal to go somewhere off down to WCW because you, you, you didn't want to do the business we wanted to do with Amsterdam. Which is, you know, another kind of, I don't mean to knock on Vern, but he wasn't great with the forward thinking. No. You can see some of that in this card, though, can't you? You can, and the next match is kind of a classic of that. Any more thoughts on this horror story of a match? Um, not really. It was just one of those moments where I, I sort of opened up the DMs to just go, what the hell am I watching here? <laughs> I was just watching this absolute sort of clown show of a match, wondering what the hell's going on. It's like Medusa's in here, Wendy Richter's in here. What the hell is going on? Why is this match terrible? Yeah, and you do the the coolest thing about this match is Medusa Maselli turning face at the end of the match when she basically states that Bad Company and Diamond Dallas Page are inept and uh, she won't ever have a man stand in her corner for her again, which is fair enough. (laughs) Shall we move on? Oh, to nepotism. Oh yeah, well we got we got we got a couple of interviews first. We have an interview with Kerry Von Eric. And his daughter, um, Kerry, is has clearly memorized one promo because he uses the same promo three times throughout the show. 
which is a bit weird. Uh, which is like there is only one statue of liberty, there is only one leaning tower of Pisa, so there should be only be one world champion, which is a bit rich when you consider the fact that these two world championships were one of four available. <laughs> the two of four are available in North American wrestling, because obviously the NWA heavyweight championship and the WWF heavyweight championship uh, were on the go at the same time and not being available here. So this next match is the international television uh title match where Greg Gagne defeat, defends the International Television Championship, oh sorry, for the vacant uh, AWA International Television Championship against uh, Hands of Stone, Ronnie Garvin. Um, five minutes and 52 seconds, and I said this on Twitter last night, I don't think I've seen a bad Ronnie Garvin match, and Ronnie Garvin is doing all of the work here. <laughs> Um, and if you look at it from that point of view, well, Ronnie Garvin carrying Greg Gagne, or like a wheelbarrow, um, you're, on, you're on a winner. If you go into this match expecting, expecting a scientific classic from either of them, you, you're really not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's just not. <laughs> Ronnie Garvin was a slight heel. Greg Gagne was a slight baby face in approach. But in the UIC pavilion... Ronnie Garvin was the babyface and Greg Gagne was getting booed out the building because he was his dad's lad and that's the reason why he was there. And people don't like that very much. Because as much as Greg is a perfectly serviceable professional wrestler, he had the personality of wet cardboard. And he is that's boring as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> as I said last night, um, Ronnie Garvin made Grand Gagne look interesting for seven minutes and the lads from... Uh, the uh, random wrestling review went, that's quite a feat. <laughs> <laughs> but that's basically what happened, as far as I can tell. John, your thoughts on this? Yeah, I can't argue with that statement. It's like Less the second than... Greg Gagne came out, I was just like, you're going to bore the hell out of me. And I'm just watching Ron Garvin pull the greatest facial expressions and oversell his heart out to try and make something interesting out of this. It's... It's for a title as well. You'd think there'd be some energy, but no, we're just going to give a nepotism booking to Greg Gagne so he can have another title in his daddy's company, whilst Ron Garvin does all the heavy lifting. It's like, God help anyone who has to face him. It's like, oh, he can wrestle, all right, yeah, but good luck trying to get any reaction when the guy could be miming, and he'd get (laughs) just as much silence. It's just like, ugh. Interestingly, um, the AWA International Television Championship, which is intriguing because they didn't have any presence on international television whatsoever. Um, there was only three champions. Can you guess who were the champions? Vern Gagne, Greg Gagne, and probably Ron Garvin. Uh, Greg Gagne twice and Ron Garvin. <laughs> <laughs> so Greg Gagne won the title in December of 1987, so literally a year before this. The title was held up by Stanley Blackburn after deciding Garvin had won under controversial circumstances in September of 1988. And then Greg Gagne wins this batch, batch. and the following year Greg Gagne retires, so that was that. (laughs) And of course the company... And the wrestling world wept. Yeah, he went on to be a booker for the AWA, uh, which obviously went swimmingly. but yeah, I, I just I just love Ronnie Garvin. I'd watch Ronnie Garvin wrestle anyone. I am I am sad that Ronnie Garvin never got to wrestle people like Shinya Hashimoto because that would have been like two that would have been the definition of the immovable object meeting the immovable object that have been there for three hours. 
<laughs> I do like his approach. Like I love like big guys that just want to hit hard because that like that's that's always interesting to me. Yeah. That's why Yonakiyama versus Eddie Kingston from like Zero Hour was so goddamn good last night. Yeah, I, I mean, actually it's... paused what I was doing to watch that. I mean, Greg Valentine wrestled Ronnie Garvin at the Royal Rumble in 1990 in a submission match. And I did that for the Roman Wrestling Review, which you can find. They they, they, they reposted it last night. And I love that match. And it was like 25 minutes long. And it's Greg Valentine and Ronnie Garvin. And they just hit each other hard. Because Greg's approach to wrestling was, if you can hit me hard enough for long enough, we can have a decent match. And Ronnie wrestles like that. So they just kept going. And it was like proper all Japan stiff. Like Baba would have loved it. <laughs> it was like, yeah, this is what you want. And this match is just like that. Ronnie just like clobbers him for five minutes. And then um, Ronnie loses by count out. And it's like, oh. And the Chicago fans are not happy. In fact, um, it's for Ronnie Garvin. Yeah. Gary Gagner actually acknowledges it, said, well, you know. If people want to cheer him, that's fine. Just this is all right. So, speaking of horror stories, shall we move on? <laughs> I remember making the joke about this and just saying, "Why does this sound like something that Jerry the King Lawler would conjure up?" Oh no! Well, speaking of the King, we do have the King in the next match, uh, in the next pro, in the next promo, where he receives the Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Um, Inspirational Wrestler of the Year award, <laughs> which is brilliant considering he was like a hardcore heel at the time. But he was then the AWA Heavyweight Champion, um, basically because he was such a massive draw in Memphis. And Ganyu wasn't daft; he did well, arguably he was. But Vern Ganyu wanted some of that rub, and um, Jerry Jarrett had been trying to get a World Heavyweight Championship on Jerry Lola for years. Uh, it's one of the reasons why why um, Continental Wrestling Association left um, uh, the NWA and joined the and affiliated with the AWA because he thought there was a better chance of him um, becoming a world's heavyweight champion under those rules under that particular um, organization. So yeah, but we'll talk about that in the main event. So here we go. The Street Fight Lingerie Battle Royal, which was presented by POW. For those of you who don't know what POW was, POW was a follow-up promotion to Glorious Ladies of Wrestling. And David Lane, who was the producer for Glorious Ladies of Wrestling to start with, um, left the TV show and started his new company. And a lot of the women who wrestled for that company, the original Glow Company, moved over to POW as well. It didn't last for very long, <laughs> as is the way of these things. But it did give us people like Luna Vachon and um, Nina, who would become Ivory, and Peggy Lee Leather, um, who would have a bit of a career outside of uh, POW, um, and, but mainly in the American Wrestling Association. Um, but yeah, this match is uh, everything you expect several level layers of awful to be the ten thousand dollars by the way that was the main event but actually once it settled down this wasn't the worst match on the card considering the fact you had a bunch of non-workers uh, i will go through the list of people in this match luna vachon 
Pocahontas. Uh, Nina, Malibu, Brandy May, Lynn, sorry, Laura Lynn, Peggy Lee Leather, Bambi, and of course, your winner of the match, the Syrian terrorist. That was her actual name. She was not Syrian, nor was she a terrorist. She tried to speak with an accent. <laughs> <laughs> It was so bad. It's dreadful. I mean, like the actual like characterization of these people is dreadful. When you watch the Netflix series Glow, you can see like that it was based on a lot of David Lane's ideas, obviously. Um, but you can see where they were coming from with this, and this is just that. This is just like this is this is the real thing. This is what Glow was. It was. Not particularly great wrestling because the the people involved were not wrestlers, but they were trained by um, uh, Chopa Guerrero's senior, um, and you know they, they they could some of them could actually work pretty well. Um, the, brilliantly, the main um, storyline was Bambi's um, feud with a Syrian terrorist because the Syrian terrorist had taken her favorite blue jean shorts and cut them all, and that was that was a strong enough storyline to get things going. <laughs> um, $10,000 yeah um, the the rules of this match was it was street fight come as you are street fight um, and you had to kind of either knock people over the top rope as you can probably imagine or take off their clothes to their underwear um, which the Syrian terrorist basically got round by taking off most of her underwear because she was wearing tights and just give up on them because they'd been ripped that much. She couldn't actually stand up straight at one point. Um, but yeah, it's the kind of camp titillation you would kind of expect from Glow and the David Lane. Um, but you know, you had some serious workers like Luna Bashan, um, and Bambi, really, um, and Peg Lee Leather. Um, yeah, and there were some interesting 80s lingerie choices which weren't compatible with professional wrestling from a just like support point of view, shall we say? What's your thoughts, John? It's funny because like everyone was there to sort of see some girls in lingerie, and I don't think it ever happened on camera. So no, just a case of lol, get fucked, you pervert. <laughs> You're not getting it. They're no, all going uh... over the top rope. <laughs> <laughs> Bambi is wearing like a corset top, which covers everything you possibly could the, the only person that like showed any form major form of skin is actually peggy lee leather who was wearing like a teddy top under, under her jeans and she loses her shirt and that was the issue she had really through the match because she was trying to offer support to things that needed more support than what she was trying that she, she was receiving from her undergarments um but yes uh it's it's not dreadful it's not the worst thing on this show. Put it that way. Apart from, you know, the racism. <laughs> yes. And I'll support this match just because Luna Vachon's in it. And Luna Vachon deserves better. <laughs> so did Ivory, to be honest with you. Did you know, I, that was interesting because I watched, um, I listened to Ivory was on a Steve Austin podcast. Because believe it or not, Steve Austin had a massive crush on her at this particular point before she started wrestling, before he started wrestling. And 
Ivory's first job in the WWF was um, one of the Godfather's hoes. Um, and most of them were like hired from um, strip clubs around the US. But they wanted somebody to take a bump, so they hired her to do it. She was happy to do it because she's been modeling and all sorts of things. And um, when she got there, she had a dressing room to herself. Um, and she said, why? She said, I'm happy to go dress with the others. And Pat Patson went, nah, you're a worker. You get your own dressing room. Because you'd see because he's seen her in this, you see. There you go. She was considered a higher level talent. She could work properly. Um, but yeah, it, eight minutes, it seems a lot longer than eight minutes and 36 seconds. Yeah. So I think that's just because of some of the glacial pacing and wardrobe problems. <laughs> well, anyway, we'll move on. Uh, yes, the Syrian terrorist wins $10,000. She's very happy about it. Um, speaking of AWA horror stories, let us move on to uh, the next one. Well, um, Bill Apter tries to give his award away to Lee Marshall, uh, for, to uh, Jerry Lawler. Um, Lee Marshall can't find Jerry Lawler to give him to give it to him. So he ends up giving it to him backstage later on. Um, but at least they did it out in front of the crowd. But you'd have thought they could have found Jerry Lawler, but I suppose they're trying to kind of like make Jerry Lawler Lee, Lee come out as a heel, so giving him an inspirational wrestling award doesn't work, does it? <laughs> yeah. It's one of them things. Uh, next matchup is a boot camp match. Sergeant Slaughter defeated Colonel De Beers with Diamond Dallas Page in a boot camp match. There's no time listing for this because it's not an official match. Um, it's just a boot camp match. Or it is. Um, yeah, which basically a boot camp match was just a street fight, uh, essentially. Um, boot camp matches were. Um, Originally designed by um, um, Pat Patterson in WWF when he became um, uh, a booking agent for a road agent for the WWF, Vince McMahon Senior said, "I'd like to do a match without a referee. Figure that out." <laughs> so Pat was like, "All right then," and he turned himself babyface. So obviously, Papas had been a heel throughout his career and had a feud with Sergeant Slaughter, and the result was a boot camp match. How do you have a match without a referee? You have this match. Um, and Colonel De Beers was uh, kind of an AWA regular. Sergeant Slaughter was an AWA regular at this point, and was really had a run in WWE. Um, Slaughter was a big star um, because he had. Um, had the association with yeah, Joe. He was literally a character in the cartoon. So, you know, um, he was a, a big draw there. Um, Colonel De Beers was um, not from South Africa. He was um, uh, actually from Missouri, of course he was. Um, was trained by Harley Race and Lord Littlebrook, funnily enough. Um, and he was all right, journeyman wrestler, but this is kind of your obvious thing. South African colonel versus American sergeant. Pro-apartheid racist versus sergeant slaughter. Um, everyone's favourite Twitter follower these days. <laughs> he follows me. Um, I, uh, I both followers by both John Cena and sergeant slaughter. 
<laughs> yeah. I have followers from Sergeant Slaughter, Mako, Satomura, and Atsushi and Eater. It's a bit weird when you, go, when you think about it like that. But there you go. Um, but yeah, and this was this was it. This was the no referee match, which would end up being the boot camp match. And it's Sergeant Slaughter kind of at his peak as a baby face and Kirill the Beers who can sell pretty well. And it's it does what it says on the tin, but it seems to be a bit heatless as far as the crowd are concerned. And but he gets going in the end. What's your thoughts on this one, John? I, I I quite like this. Yeah. I, I I quite enjoy Sergeant Slaughter. Like he's he's one of those over the top characters that's just kind of fun. It might just be because I grew up with G.I. Joe stuff, but like there's just some like he's fun to watch. He's not the most mobile guy, but like he's a big dude. He's got his combat boots on, his helmet, and he's just beating up a guy with a riding crop for half the match and headbutting people with a helmet on. Like it's just funny and fun. It's it's a dumb match, but it's perfectly fine for what it is. And again, you've got Diamond Dallas Page getting twatted halfway through a match. Just screaming. Trying to get involved. <laughs> yeah, just screaming. That's all it is. It's just screaming. Um, yeah, it, it's it's just. It's, it's, it does what it says on the tin again, doesn't it? It's just a match that happens and everyone's into it. There's an awful lot of empty seats on the hard camera side, though. That was perhaps a mistake. 1,600 people turned up to watch this, by the way. The Not bad. The thing with um, boot camp, though, is because of the wrestling I watch, I tend to associate boot camp more with Corporal Robinson, who is the deathmatch wrestler, rather than Sergeant Slaughter now. Well, yeah, if someone is. Because... Nice to see someone who's carrying it forward. <laughs> is he there? Um, whenever he's about to kill someone off, it's just like, well, I'm going to boot camp, bitch, and just kills them. Fair yeah. enough. I, oh, did ask, good. I did ask Sergeant Slaughter about what, how he felt about a card's use of the money clip over Twitter, and his reply was, uh, was obviously Cobra Clutch money clip, very similar. And okay. he said it should only be used by those who are of great knowledge. It's got to be used sparingly by by people with great knowledge. And here's another thing is, like, Sergeant Slaughter's a hardcore Republican, but he doesn't shout about it. (laughs) So it makes him a bit more, like, you know, likeable. He's a Republican. He said, vote, please vote Republican last election. That's all he mentioned about the entire campaign. Didn't go, like, madding on Trump. Didn't do anything else. Just, like, I'm a Republican. I was like, oh, okay, you can deal with that. That's all right. Oh, you know, it's not like... The only thing I... Like the only way I learned about is like Republican leaning because he turned up to one of Kane's events. Yeah. Glenn Jay. And I was just like, oh, I suppose what was I expecting? Yeah, he's a old man from, you know, uh, in pro wrestling background. And, you know, even though he was trying to unionize wrestling, he was just, he's not going to be a Democrat, is he? There we go. So actually probably one of the more visible matches to have on the card to, to, to watch. If you're going to pick... And I strongly suggest you do. <laughs> if you're going to pick out the best matches, this is one of them. Um, actually, the next match is not awful. Uh, and it's it's kind of a classic Texas match involving some classic Texas wrestlers doing things in a very different way. It's for the WCWA Tag Team Championships. That's out of Dallas. The Samoan SWAT team, Sanu and Fatu, 
They were managed by Buddy Rogers, go up against Michael Hayes and Steve Cox. The champions retain in seven minutes and 53 seconds. And obviously the intrigue here is former Freebird Buddy Roberts managing the Samoan SWAT team, coming up against his former best friend, Michael Hayes, uh, who's tagging with the young Steve Cox. And, you know, this is, well, the, 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 the thing is, no one mentions it. <laughs> like, it's obvious. Like, the obvious thing to do on commentary is, like, go on about, like, oh, Buddy Roberts must know the Freebirds free playbook backwards and he can exploit this young wrestler. And you could do all so much with the commentary. No one mentions it. No one mentions that the Buddy was in the Freebirds. No one mentions that Buddy Rogers, it's just, it's just there. I, I thought that was a bit odd because, like, I suck at remembering wrestling timelines. Like, anything yeah. before I started taking a major interest will occasionally fail. So I'm just thinking to myself, because they're not mentioning it, it's like, I was just thinking in my head, surely the free birds have happened by now, right? And they're just not <laughs> saying anything about Michael Hayes and Buddy Roberts on opposing sides here. So good. I'm not the only one who thought it was weird. No, no, it's, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, some classic moments of Michael Hayes being a babyface because he was actually a really good babyface. He could work as a babyface really well. And it was usually set up to work as to go as a heel in the end. I'm guessing this tag team was put together so that Hayes would get frustrated with Steve Cox being a rookie and just collaborate him and then start a feud and get Cox over as a babyface because that's what he was really good at. Hayes knew how to do that really, really well. The Samoan SWAT team are a fantastic tag team. Always were. Um, they had a run here. They obviously went to WCW and then had a run as the head shrinkers in the WWF because there was no wrestling company that wasn't racist back then. Um, and of course, do you know who Fatu ended up being? Um, oh, I know this one. Go on. I, I thought I knew this one. <laughs> Is there that many? There's not many members. You 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 are kind of like it's difficult to slim it down, but yeah. There's obviously there's there's the MLW, like that too, which was Emu and another. This isn't Rikishi, is it? Yes, it Rikishi. is. Yeah, Fatu yeah. would end up being Rikishi in the end, um, where he had a chance to show off a load of personality, which he had loads of, but obviously couldn't at this particular point in his career, though, you know, they aren't being portrayed as complete savages in this particular match. Um, they're portrayed as a, as a keen tag team. It's good. I liked it. It's... I think one of my, like, my favourite overall, like, Samoan tag teams is the Samoan Island Drive from MLW, which had, like, pre-Umaga, pre Umaga, and Sifa and Fatu. It was just great. It was, <laughs> was it, no, was it Man, Mana and Sifa, sorry. And it was yeah. just really, they were just, like, they dressed like street thugs, but it was still that Samoan style of just brutality. It was so good. It was, I mean. A bit of that here, actually, because they're more, like, casually dressed, but they're still using the sort of Samoan style. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is um, the Samoan SWAT team. Like when they went to WCW, were kind of portrayed more as savages and were managed by Oliver Humphrey. Um, But it's kind of like what they were doing here, really. 
Well, that was one of the strongest tag team divisions I've ever seen because it was like there was them, the Steiners, the Skyscrapers, Doom, the Horsemen. It was like that was insane times for tag team wrestling at that particular point. Um, but yeah, you can see that you can see why they would go on to be national stars. They have everything here, but you can't see too much of it in seven minutes, 53 seconds, because the emphasis is on Cox and Hayes, even though they lose. Um, and because Hayes gets knocked out, basically, it's pinfall for the the Samoan SWAT team, but um, Hayes is essentially knocked unconscious. Uh, I think it's by Buddy Roberts, isn't it? Yeah, my knuckles. Yeah. <laughs> the ever-present brass knuckles um but yeah so it, this is this is actually probably the best tag team match on the card which you'd expect for a world tag team championship match um shall we move on because we've got a lot to talk about <laughs> oh my, my favorite match is next yes indeed so well we've got three more matches to talk about so this one is kind of a not very AWA match. This is much more of a WCW style match. Wahoo McDaniel defeats Manny Fernandez, the Raging Bull, in an Indian strap match. Seven minutes and 48 seconds. Mike Enos is your referee. And this match begins by an introduction of the then IWGP heavyweight champion, Tatsumi Fujinami. Because, of course, you can't have uh, not another office not involved in this. Um, the AWA had um, a talent swap agreement with New Japan Pro Wrestling, who just left their agreement with WWF a couple of years before and were now um, using the AWA Heavyweight Championship as the championship and it would be defended on the January 4th show that year. Larry Zabisco would defend the AWA Championship, I think, against Shinya Hashimoto. No, it won't. It would have been against um, Masa Saito. So, um, but this match is an Indian strap match and I do miss, I do like a good Indian strap match. And Manny Fernandez and Wahuma Daniel, by gum, they know how to swing that strap. And there's blood everywhere, which is a foreshadowing. later. Um, but Wahuma Daniel and Manny Fernandez are just two perfect guys to, to do this match with. And, you know, Wahuma Daniel was the king of the Indian death match. He never lost one in his career, as far as we know, as far as I know. And I like these two watching these two wrestle because Wahoo just didn't do anything he didn't want to do. So he knew his limitations, never ran the ropes, ever. Didn't like it, didn't want to do it, so he wouldn't do it. <laughs> and you kind of did what who wanted to do, and Manny was all right with that, and therefore they had a great match. And this was brilliant. This is, part of, I would think, probably the best match on the card. What's your thoughts on this one, John? Best match on the card. It is so violent. It is amazing. Like... If there was going to be any match to represent, like, the Texas Deathmatch side of this sort of collaboration, even if it's not from, like, the Texas company, it's just like, yep, perfect. We've got two big bruisers strapped to each other, ready to whip the hell out of each other and bleed buckets. And it's just physically violent. There is no give in this match. And they are literally just dragging each other around half the time because someone's knocked out and it's just like, right, I'm going to get it at last and they don't. And it's just, it's, it's the perfect strap match. Like I've seen modern day strap matches that are just kind of dull because they're all just running around the ring continuously trying to play tap the turnbuckle instead of, you know, just knocking your opponent out and dragging their corpse. <laughs> 
Oh, I loved this. I really loved this. Yeah, no, it's just a blast. This is it's, it's just it's just fun. Um, because Wahoo uh, was an AFL champion football player. He he went to Oklahoma. So obviously, Jim Ross is a massive fan of his. <laughs> um, and was a second round draft pick um, in the AFL. Uh, and most famously was a New York Jet uh, back in the 1960s. Um, but he didn't have McDaniel written on the back of his jersey. He had Wahoo written on the back of his jersey. And the ring announcer at Shea Stadium, sorry, the ring announcer, the match announcer at Shea Stadium, uh, every time he made a tackle, would say over the tannoy, tackle by guess who? crowd would scream wahoo 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 it was a massive star in new york because of that so there you go um but yeah and amazingly uh, tatsumi fujinami comes back to make the save on wahoo um and gets rid of manny fernandez <laughs> which is just really cool it's tatsumi fujinami just turning up to make a save that's brilliant <laughs> This is just great fun. It's sort of it's an oddity on the card because like Tatsumi Fujinami's there, but it's just like it's such a great match. It is, and it's kind of like a main event level match, but this isn't a main event match. It just appears to be here for no apparent reason. You know, the structuring of this show is so fucking weird. Well, that's, uh, I suppose it's a bunch of feuds happening in a bunch of different companies that the crowd haven't necessarily been party to. Because if you live in Minnesota, you don't haven't necessarily watched, you know, um, Texas TV or Tennessee TV, have you either? Uh, so it's yeah, it's a bit yeah, it's a bit strange to be honest with you. Um, but there you go. Um, but yeah, so it, but the. Shall we move on to the, the semi-main event? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, because this is this is a rematch and it's a unification match for the AWA and WCWA World Heavyweight Championships. Jerry Lawler and Kerry Von Eric had had a match previous to this one. They'd gone for an hour in Las Vegas, um, which was a really good match. Um, except for a couple of things that went were went wrong, namely the announcer going, are you ready to go 60 minutes? That was Lee Marshall calling the match, which telegraphed the ending because they went for 60 minutes. And this was a rematch at Super Clash 3 for the unification of the AWA and World Class Wrestling Association Championships. Obviously, the AWA Championship had been around since the 1960s when Vern Gagne formed the AWA and took over the Chicago Territory uh, from the WWA. And the World Cast Wrestling Heavyweight Championship at that particular point had been around for three years, I believe. Um, well, no, technically it had been around since the 60s. Originally it was the NWA United States Heavyweight Championship, then it was the United States NWA American Heavyweight Championship. Then it became the NWCWC, sorry, WCCW American Heavyweight Championship as they lost the affiliation with the NWA. And eventually it was it became the WCWA World Heavyweight Championship in 1986. And the first champion was Chris Adams and then Black Bart. And it went downhill from there. Kevin Von Erich, Al Perez. <laughs> uh, 
Al was all right, but he wasn't that good. Um, Jerry Lawler won the championship, uh, obviously, on a, on a house show here. Um, and then Tatsumi Fujinami held it for a while as well. Um, because Fujinami refused to... Basically, Fujinami beat Kerry Von Erich um, because Kerry was bleeding too heavily to continue. And then... Um, Tatsumi Fujinami refused to defend the belt against Kerry, saying that's just not the way to end a wrestling match and gave him the belt back, which was nice of him. <laughs> or we just couldn't afford to keep you for that long, I suppose. Um, and then this match was what came up after that particular match. So you have a world champion in Kerry Von Eric for a belt that really hasn't got the lineage it needs to be a proper world heavyweight champion. Chip and Jerry Lawler, who's kind of on borrowed time as AWA World's Heavyweight Champion, um, because Van Gagne didn't like him. And I'll talk about the aftermath of that later. However, um, you've got two guys who are kind of at the top of their game. This is a bit of a dream match, and it should be pretty good, but it never seems to quite get going where it's supposed to go. Does that make sense? I think they were just aware of the end that they were going to have and just didn't feel like committing. Because why waste the energy for a dud, I guess, is my view of it. It's like, sure, that's a shite viewpoint to have, but like, considering like the momentum this match probably has, only for it to be, for it to sort of go down like a lead balloon, I figured they just, it seems like they just decided, right, let's just, we'll get bloody, we'll throw a bunch of punches, we'll do all this but let's never really kick it into third gear because we have no need to yeah i mean that's basically it i mean um i'm trying to remember the name of the um in front of the president of the awa it's stanley blackwell isn't it yeah stanley blackwell had told the referees after the wahoo and daniel manu fernandez match if there was too much blood the match must be stopped and at which point, Kerry Von Erich um, blades with a massive blade job. I mean, it's, it's one of the worst looking blade jobs I've ever seen from a, a content point of view. He is absolutely drenched in blood and is gushing blood all the way through this particular match. Um, not very long into the start of the match, to be honest with you. Um, Lawler turns soul heel because there's no way he's going to be a baby race against Kerry Von Erich. So he kind of like, um, does the foreign object routine whether he actually had a foreign object in his tights or not I don't really know because it didn't look like he did when he hit him, it just looked like he was oh, hiding he, he just kind of reaches into his like tights and he's like right I'm going to get you and, but then just throws a regular punch it doesn't look yeah. like he's got knucks on or anything so I'm just kind of like was it a fake out? Is it, I just yeah, I didn't think forget was... to have an item did, did, no, I don't I I think he, I think what happened was he came in as a baby, he came in wanting to be a baby face and that's the way they booked it and then read the crowd and went, yeah, this isn't happening. <laughs> and it was like, right. So he so did his best to wing it. Yeah, he was improvising his way through the match, which is fair enough. That's that's what he did. And um, yeah. It, terrible. Like, it's not terrible. This and it's not bad. It's pretty brutal it's just missing it's, something you know i mean carrie wasn't wasn't carrie was a lot of people argue that carrie was never that good after he lost his foot 
in the motorcycle accident. But I disagree because I think some of the matches he had here, when he had a guy that he could really go with, he could have a great match. The matches he had with Hennig in the WWE, um, he was excellent with. And this match is not terrible. And Lawler knows how to make, he's not a great worker, but he knows how to make um, a match go. You know, to a main event match, he's done this literally every Monday night for years on end. He knows how to make a main event work in whatever circumstances. It just isn't like, it isn't like a Texas match and it isn't like a Memphis match. And it kind of like, it's definitely not like an AWA match. So therefore, it just kind of doesn't quite fit into anything it's supposed to be. That I makes think. sense. Yeah. You know, it's like, this, this isn't Nick Bockwinkle versus Ray Stevens, is it? And it's also not Jerry Lawler versus Randy Savage, nor is it Kerry Von Eric versus Michael Hayes. It's just a, it just kind of sits there <laughs> when it could be so much more, if that makes sense. It's, it's a shame because, like, the amount of blood they shed for this is quite spectacular. <laughs> yes. I mean, like, worrying, like, amounts of blood lost. Um, and Fred Dusick is that down the ringside going, no, no, I've seen him bleed this much before. He'll be fine. <laughs> that did and crack I, me up. It's like, no, Raph, he bleeds a lot. You you, you got to get used to that. <laughs> it, it does remind me of a match I watched this week, though, that I really enjoyed. It was um, Impact, Sammy Callahan versus Eric Young match, because Eric Young bled her. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Bucking. Yeah. I don't think that was well, intentional. <laughs> I don't know. Every time he's in a match and he bleeds, it always goes like he he must just be an easy bleeder. That's, like he yeah. deserves his own scale at this point. It's like when Muta retires, we'll just we'll create the Eric Young scale. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, a, there's also the point in this match where um, Carrier clearly hidden his blade just underneath his bicep and manages to slice himself open with it. So that he's already bleeding mm-hmm. from the arm to start with um yeah and then it's, sort of playing it off it's like oh lola snapped like smashed his forearm off a ring post and has gashed it up and it's like yeah of course he did yeah it's just clumsy should be better than what it is should be loads better than what it is not that it's bad it's just not like you know for the super card that this is supposed to be um Arguably, previous super clashes have not really lived up to reputation either. I mean, the previous Super Clash 2 event was headlined by Jimmy Snooker and Russ Francis versus the terrorist and the mercenary. Jerry Blackwell and versus Boris Zukov. <laughs> the Midnight Rockers and Ray Stevens. Versus Buddy Wolf, Doug Summers, and Kevin Kelly. Not that Kevin Kelly. And the Kurt Heinig versus Nick Bockwinkle was the fourth match on the card for the AWA Heavyweight Championship. And apparently that was a super clash. Not all that super. Um, you know, the first one, though, Rick Flair versus Magnum TA for the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship and Rick Martel versus Stan Hansen for the AWA World Heavyweight Championship. That is indeed a super clash. That... I will go with, but Super Quest 3 and Super Quest 2, Super Quest 3 is more on the super end, but not particularly super. I think we were getting sold a bit of goods. I mean, thankfully, we don't have to pay for this. It's on YouTube if you want to look at it. It's also on the WWE Network, which would probably be a cleaner copy, but 
clearly the WWE aren't that bothered. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And amazingly, of course, this unification dream match between two megastars of the 80s is not the main event of this card. Should we explore the main event? Squib event? Did we talk about the damp squib ending? Just no, the damp squib ending. was called off because yeah, Kerry Von Erich bled too much. Technical knockout. Jerry Lawler takes both championships because Kerry Von Erich bleeds too much. And, um, like yeah. Lawler's on his back gasping for air after being crushed by the iron claw for Christ knows how long. And they're just like, no, no, sorry. But Kerry Von Erich's bleeding too much. It doesn't matter the bloody Jerry Lawler's bleeding from the mouth and practically no. exhausted. No, oh, it's Caravan Eric that's lost here. It's like what? <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just, just, and it's like I understand they have to protect both guys, but this doesn't really protect both guys. It just looks silly. So, yeah, it's like, and you know, but that was the thing. Oh, no, I, this this is too many cooks exactly spoiling the broth, isn't it? This is what it's about. It, it's just like. This is why you can't have nice things. <laughs> In AEW, like, though, we've been nice. ending. Like, have it be some... Hell, you could have gone for the fucking shenanigans ending. I'd have taken that for the third time over bloody... Oh, there's just a bit too much blood. Oh. You could have you could have even had just, like, a count-out ending or a DQ ending because there had to be a winner. So you could have just had a DQ ending and somebody takes both titles and no one, everyone goes, I'm happy. Or a cow out ending. But no, we have to come up with this convoluted finish that was just dreadful. <sighs> Should we move on to this main event that isn't really a main event? Meaning <laughs> this five minutes of action. Seven. Actually seven. Um, Is that including all the outside shit that happens afterwards? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, the actual timed match. Uh the Rock and Roll Express, Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson go up against the stud table, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden in a classic Southern tag team match, as you can probably imagine, between two classic Southern tag teams. Can't really say anything more than that. Um, but it just ends in double disqualification because, you know, they're trying to build a feud, so they're not going to actually have a finish, are they? Because that'd be... So the, the main event, after the crowd have been disappointed by a squib finish, and the babyface hero goes home empty-handed, despite the fact he's the most dominant person in the match. You're then treated to the most popular tag team of the 1980s by a long way in a double DQ finish with Robbie Fuller and Jimmy Golden. Robbie Fuller and Jimmy Golden are perfectly good wrestlers. They're really, really good. In fact, they're top heels. And as a Southern tag team, just about as good as you could get. Um, but yeah, is this really the way to send your fans home happy? Not what I would have chosen, that's for certain. It's, no. It's like, it's... It's not even a match as such, is it? Because like, I was going to say, oh, it's it's good for what it is, but, like, it, it's got my favourite moment from the show in, and that is literally um, Ricky Martin going for a pin on one of the, the studs stable, backing up, letting the guy get who's pinned get stomped on, and then decking the other guy in the mouth. Like that's that's the best moment in this match because it's the only moment I still remember outside of it. Then suddenly going to a double DQ and just being like, "Brilliant! That 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 was your main event. 
fuck off. <laughs> I like it just because it's Robert doing the majority of the work and like Ricky is, it's not Ricky to Robert, it's Robert to Ricky. Ricky is the hot tag and you've barely got to see Ricky as the hot tag. Clearly Robert was going like, you can have a night off tonight. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll deal with these two big lumps. Um, but yeah, I'm, I mean, Robert Gibson would go on to be chief booker in Alabama and um, obviously he would end up being Colonel Robert Fuller in WCW at the end of his run where he would bring back the stud table, stud stable with Terry Funk, Karen Anderson and indeed Jimmy Golden as bunkhouse book. And there were obviously clearly issues of having Terry Funk and bunkhouse book with Bobby Heenan on commentary, <laughs> which they thankfully managed to avoid. But there you go. Um, I did love the post-match promo from like the stud stable because the guy's face, like I, I, I apologize, I couldn't remember which one was which, so I'm being big as hell. And it's just a case of like the, the one the speaking is he's got the greatest like facial expressions ever he looks so angry and he probably is because he's been promised the main event on like this super class show and it's gone for like seven minutes and ended in nothing (laughs) i mean robert fuller is just like he's sort of masculine genius he's one of those guys a big influence on cactus joe um and robert would teach him no end of stuff about uh, about the wrestling industry if the cactus joe says his biography it's like one of the, the best as much as he hated Texas, he loved Alabama for the same, for you know, because of the way Robert treated him in in uh, Alabama. Always kept him books, always kept him in the in the mix. Um, and yeah, it does get quite stiff at the end because Jimmy Golden's like throwing some heavy stuff at Ricky Morton, and I'm wondering if things like, did that genuinely get out of hand at that particular point. But they are four t- two teams who are exceptional at selling. That's one of the reasons it makes them so good. So. Who just got caught up in things. There you go. Um, and that was Super Clash 3, which was a clash, but it was not super <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and then uh, you'd be unsurprised to know uh, this underwhelming event only drew 45,000 people on a buy rate and only 1,600 people turned up in person. So Greg Gagne did not have uh, enough money to pay everybody who worked that show, including Jerry Lawler. He was not paid for his participation in the end, and Gagne stripped him of the title and buried him on AWA television, thus ending the relationship between CWA and the AWA. And Jerry Jarrett would not burn Gagne ever again, which was all right, because they would concentrate on the merger with World Class Championship Wrestling, and that would create the USWA, which would dominate Southern wrestling for the next five or six years until they ran out of money. But here we are. <laughs> well, actually, funnily enough, the, the legacy of this particular match is, of course, Lawler can st- could still claim he was the undefeated AWA heavyweight championship, heavyweight champion, and merging the, so- the Southern championship, the AWA Southern championship, uh, which was the top belt in Memphis, with the WCWA World Heavyweight Championship, which was the top belt in Dallas, as well as being the AWA World Heavyweight Champion, gave it a genuine lineage as the USWA Heavyweight Championship um, and was quite a respected title for the time it existed. Um, 
And the, their biggest point was, you know, it, it's not a company title. It was defended in World Class. It was defended in CWA and other promotions as well. What's your th- overall thoughts on the card? Yeah, it was fine. Like, it's, it's an absolute shit show. Like, there's, there's no getting around that. It is a mess. And there are so many moving parts and unstable elements that there was no way it was ever going to work properly. Like, as you said, Vern Gagne didn't exactly have the business sense to keep things like this going well. And it, a lot of this seems like it's just going on a wing and a prayer and hoping for the best. And it's it's no surprise that stuff went out, like got out of hand and people didn't get paid. And typical carny wrestling <laughs> stuff, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, yeah. It's yeah. Like, did, did you hear about the New York show that had bloody Katsuhiko Nakajima, Ultimo Dragon, and oh, and it basically barely anyone got paid. I heard it was going ahead, and I was like, "Oh, that yeah, sounds it, interesting." It happened last week, and because. The wrestlers knew they weren't going to get paid. The like card was shuffled a bit, so it was like Rico Rodriguez, Alberto Del Rio, and Josh Alexander versus Katsuhiko Nakajima, Ultimo Dragon, and oh, wish I could remember the other guy. But basically, the Noah guys, yeah, kind of knew they weren't going to get paid and still it- put on a show. It, it was Marif- yeah, it was Marufuji. Of course, yeah. it was Marafuji. Yeah. I was just, it was in my head, and I was just saying, it, it's, ah. Oh. I know, because Vinny Mas- like... Um, Vinny Mas- say Vinny Massaro was on that card last night, and him and Marafuji were talking this morning about pizza. Because I think Mas- I think Vinny managed to get more food and fed. <laughs> um, he looked at Massaro is such a good guy. Like... He is. He's lovely. He's a lovely bloke. Absolutely lovely. And another one of my followers as well. Watch- I really enjoyed watching his matches lately because, again, he's just a sort of big guy that likes to throw big strikes and it's the snug life. It is, indeed. Um, but, yeah, no, it, it's, yeah, it, it, it was pretty much the end of the end for the AWA. The company just couldn't exist when doing things like that. There was a Super Clash 4. Super Clash 4 was... Ooh... Let's see, it was in it was back in Minneapolis and was Larry Zabisco versus Mr. Sato for the AWA World's Heavyweight Championship. Um, oh my lord, Jake Millman versus Ted Becker. That sounds horrible. Killer and Psycho versus Brad Reggins and DJ Peterson. Uh, that, that, that sounds even worse. Baron von Raschke versus Colonel De Beers. They must have had a combined age of about 159 by that particular point. Uh, the Trooper, um, who was actually Del Wilkes and Paul Diamond, versus the Destruction Crew, Mike Enos and Wayne Bloom. So literally, within less than a year, or just over a year, Wayne Bloom went from refereeing on this show versus to main eventing the next pay-per-view, which will tell you the state of the AWA was in at that particular time. It were in Elva State. It were in Minnesota. <laughs> and with that dad joke we'll close today's show unless you're well I don't think we can say anything more about this show if, uh, other than you should watch it 
to see why companies don't work together very often anymore. <laughs> um, why Vince became number one, really. This is, this is an abject lesson on why the WWF became the dominant force in professional wrestling worldwide is because no one else had their shit together. But there you go. Um, thank yeah. you for listening to the Troopney Show today. I'd like to thank Mr. John Dinsdale for being my guest. Yeah, the, thanks for him, but sorry, just Twitter scrolling made me sad. Well, it does mostly, mostly these days. We have to, some things to announce about that. But carry on. Why has, made it, why has it made you sad? Uh, Jason David Frank, a.k.a. the green, white, and multiple different iterations of Power Rangers has um, passed away. And obviously, being a 90s into the 2000s kid, like Power Rangers was one of my lifelines. So rest in peace, Jason David Frank. This is why I shouldn't scroll. This is why I shouldn't scroll Twitter during the show. Well, no. (laughs) But anyway, where can we find you on the internet? Well, the the aforementioned Twitter at handle John Deathman. That is a gateway to hell, quite literally, where their writings, ramblings, opinions, with little show reviews that I tend to watch. Like, um, I did a nice little thread about the POR Hardcore Grand Prix where you can watch Matthew Justice blow someone's head up with fireworks. I'm not kidding. <laughs> uh, you can find me at Instagram, where it's basically another way to see my work in a different medium. That's John underscore Deathman. And I'm on Patreon with the Deathmatch Digest, which is a twice weekly deep dive into the world of Deathmatch, looking at different companies. This week we did Impact with Abyss vs. Sam P- Sabu, Barbed Wire Massacre. And MLW's LA Park versus Jacob Fatu, no DQ match from Superfight 2019. So if either of those sound interesting, then yeah, patreon.com slash deathmatchdigest. Okay, you can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on uh, Twitter. You can find me at Sheriff Lone Star TX on Instagram. You can find me. Or you can find the show on Twitter, The Troopany Show, sorry, Troopany Show, and on Facebook, The Troopany Show, and on Patreon, The Troopany Show. We are now stretching our legs into the social media world as we're slightly terrified that um, we're going to lose Twitter at any moment because it's run by an idiot. So uh, we now have a Discord channel um, called Troopany Show Podcast, or The Troopany Show Podcast, and we also have... Um, an Instagram account for the show, which will be, which is the Troopany show. Um, I've not yet decided how to do content on there because I've not had time to think about it since I opened the accounts. But as you can imagine, for the wrestling world that basically revolves around Twitter, Elon Musk's stupidity is terrifying all of us, which is why we're having to open different accounts in different places um, to make sure. You know, on Monday, we were all terrified and Chelsea encouraged me to start a Discord, which I have done um so yeah um and we will probably start live streaming the show on discord as well um as doing it on skype just because we can and the technology is there to do it so um as of next week um we haven't quite decided yet we're still waiting for chelsea to do uh the cmll uh women's tournament which was really cool and we'd like to see it but it hasn't appeared on cmll tv yet cmll executives get your thumb out 
AAA wouldn't do this to us. Anywho, um, and we have an idea about doing a Thanksgiving special next week. There is, of course, the start of a New Japan show we probably should have a look at. <laughs> as it's a massively important show. And I'm sure the boys over at the Wrestling Rewind will have a look at all um, full gear. But we'll see what happens during the week. In the meantime, take care. We'll speak to you soon. Oh, yeah. I think about that. I forgot to mention this. Oh, yeah. It's the return of Today At, and it'll be the Today At Best of Stupid Junior Tag League and, of course, World Tag League, which starts tomorrow at Currican Hall, which I will not have time to watch because I've got a 14-hour day, but I'm sure I'll get to it on Tuesday at some point. In the meantime, take care, and we'll speak to you soon. Bye.